Imagine if you had the opportunity to pick any principal of any school in Australia and talk to them about leadership. Well, that's what I've got to do with Bryony Scott. Bryony Scott exemplifies what it means to lead in a school, in my opinion. She knows how to influence, she knows how to inspire, she knows how to direct and she knows how to motivate. She knows how to pull all of this together to create today's learning for tomorrow's world. She's a remarkable person and an inspiration to many around and also a bit feisty at times too. And I like all of that and more. Bryony Scott, I can't wait to talk to her. I'm really excited to let's go. Before I start my conversation with today's Game Changers special series guest, Adriano, can you share with our audience a little insight into our Series 11 sponsor? Thanks, Phil. Of course. We are proud to be partnered with the School for Tomorrow and Alex Bell at Portland Education in delivering a dynamic coaching-based leadership program called Lead Now. Lead Now provides the opportunity for emerging and established middle leaders to further build towards their full potential, contributing to the ongoing high performance of the school community they serve. Head to a schoolfortomorrow.com forward slash coaching. Let's go. Hello, Bryony. Hi, Phil. <laughs> Thank you for that really kind introduction. Oh, I don't think it's kind. I think I probably could have said a whole lot more things. I think I'm trying to encapsulate what many people in our profession think of you and not only the role that you've been doing at two schools now and prior to that in your career at Roseville and Roseville College and now at Winona, but also in, in the way in which you speak for so many in the profession as a leader without claiming to speak on their behalf, which is a wonderful thing. Can I start by asking you a question about you and leadership. Did you always know that you wanted to lead? No. And I, I don't even think about what I do now in terms of I'm a leader, even though I am. That is so secondary to what I do. It's, it's a means to an end. And what I do know is that my role is to kind of connect with, particularly with young people, and to help create a space where they have voice. For me to do that, means that I need to step into leadership. And for me to do that means I need to be able to speak about the work that principals and teachers do in schools. So it's a means to an end. So when you were sitting there and contemplating putting in an application for Roseville College, had you thought about doing the job of being a school principal beforehand or was it really, oh, hang on, maybe I'm ready to do this now, it's, it's time? No, I'd actually had a bit of a break from my previous school and I had a friend of mine who was a lawyer who phoned up and said, look, this job's in the paper, you should go for it. And I said, well, that just goes to show that you're a lawyer and you have no idea how schools work. And I was watching CSI and like on a late one night and she's like, go on, go and do it. And so I contacted them and said, look, I know the applications have closed, but, you know, can I put one in? And they were, sure, of course you can. I mean, we're, we're going to the board tomorrow, so if you can get it in tonight. So I sat there in front of CSI as bullets kind of squelched through body, you know, and they had all these visual effects and at the same time as I'm tapping out my application. The ironic thing about my role there, and I have no idea how I got that job, but I do know that when I got there, about six months into it, I cleaned out a cupboard that was in the principal's office and found my application for deputy that I'd sent through about nine or 10 months earlier that hadn't even got to interview. So it was a really good lesson to me that, you know, A, I'm clearly very bad at predicting anything in terms of, of my career and where we go, but also just to put throw your hat in the ring because one job didn't work and one job did, and I just followed that path. So 
no, I had no idea about the whole concept of being a principal until I got into the role. So bulletin bodies and bullet points on pages. <laughs> Perhaps it also means too that you weren't right for a deputy's role at that point in time, but you're absolutely right for a head's role. What do you think is the difference between the role of people who perform that singular role of leading a school community as opposed to the one or group of people around that person who are the senior leaders in some sort of deputy or director type position? Very little in some respects. I could not do what I do without my senior team. I'm not just saying that to make them feel good. That's been the case in every school I've ever worked in. It can never be about one person. The minute it becomes about one person, everyone loses. The one person loses, the team loses, the kids lose, the staff lose, the parents lose. It it is actually an impossible job for one person. And no one person can see the implications or the reactions that can happen when you make a decision. It absolutely takes a team. You know, the total is greater than the sum of the parts has been true in my leadership, that it's not just that you even have a team. It's when that team work in synchronicity to a point, like we never work 100% in sync because we're really different people. And there are always going to be times where we bump up against each other. But that team, when it works, it's like so sweet because everybody has their roles. People don't get offended. They're not embarrassed to say, I don't know, or I need help. And the growth that happens from that is phenomenal. I couldn't I couldn't do my job if it was just me, just me. So from my perspective, I'm not sure that there is a lot of difference because by the time you're at that level, the humility that is needed to go, it's not me. I can't actually do this without my friends and colleagues having my back and supporting me and stepping in. The ones who don't make it are the ones who think that it's about them. So when they fail, they take it personally, they get offended, you know, things become issues when you're in that senior level of leadership, you can't let anything become an issue because it's not actually about you. So you talk about the team when it works. Yeah. Can you describe the capabilities or competencies that it takes to be a good team member? Oh, humility, I would think, would be the first one because, you know, as you get older, it's really hard to keep learning. I know we talk about being a continual learner. We talk about being able to, you know, go from strength to strength. But when I was a child, if I fell over or I tripped over the stairs, I would pick myself up and dust myself off and keep going. And, you know, I might cry a bit if it hurts or whatever, but I just kept going. Now, if I trip over the stairs and fall down, I'm so deeply embarrassed. Like there's, I don't expect to fall over. I expect to be good at what I do. And I expect that with every passing year, I get better with what I do. And so for me to be, to reach my age and then go, actually, you're going to be a beginner again, and you're going to make mistakes and those mistakes are public mistakes and how are you going to deal with them? That takes humility. It takes grace to extend to other people when they make mistakes and receiving grace in return when so often what is expected is that if you make a mistake, you get vilified, cancelled, crossed off, fired, you know, like performance managed, all these things. And there are times perhaps where that is necessary in this culture, but by and large, the growth happens when you come alongside people. I have never become a better leader by being publicly reprimanded or humiliated. I have always grown when people have extended me the grace and the space to admit where things have gone wrong and where my ego might have stepped in or, or whatever, but I learn from that and move on. So for me with my teams, it's like I'm after that 
humility. And it's, it's not a subservient humility because, in fact, you do need to be confident, you do need to be exceptionally good at your job, but there is a sense that we are working and growing and living together and nobody wakes up in the morning, puts their feet on the floor and goes, how can I screw up today? How can I make everybody hate me? How can I get in trouble? How can I, how can I make mistakes rather than do it? Nobody does that, right? So when it happens, you do want to be able to have that humility and grace to be able to navigate your way through it. Where I start getting a bit grumpy is if we're making the same mistake over and over again or we're refusing to learn or we're camping out and going, well, look, I was right here. And I'm like, well, if you're right but there is grief all around you, then something's not worked. So let's talk about that. Thank you. I'm going to come back to some of the qualities you mentioned earlier, but it's probably fair given like you and I have known each other for at least a couple of years now, possibly possibly at least 20 years, but in one way, shape or form, which is a which is a really lovely thing, actually. It's lovely to have had connection with colleagues over that period of time. We're not particularly close colleagues. We've sort of mostly seen each other around about a thing and, and that of itself is there's actually something particularly lovely about that as well too, where you, you're connected without being intimate and you've just got a bit of a distance and a bit of perspective on on things like that. For the sake of the listeners who haven't had the privilege of watching your journey, can you give us a quick summary of your journey, you know, how you got to where you are today? I, I can. It's not something that I normally talk about because it's not a conventional career path in some respects. I did it makes it even better, really, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think it, it's a really interesting question as to, you know, people who often think they haven't ticked boxes or done the right thing. And I, I think those days are gone. And even though I'm a sample size of one, I think the opportunities for leadership and involvement in this profession are now coming from multiple pathways and not not just not just the one, which is what it was typically. So I did agricultural science at university, which was in retrospect, obviously a mistake because I grew up on the ocean and knew a lot about water and, and sailing and swimming and kayaking and scuba diving. And my father was a doctor in underwater medicine. It took me till third year agriculture to realise I still didn't know how they made hay. And that wasn't really voting well for a great career um, in agriculture. So I majored in education in my last year and did agricultural science and science and a bit of maths. And went and taught for a year and a half in a, a small startup boys' school. And after a year, I was promoted to the year mistress, which was a really unfortunate term, you know, that to be the year nine year mistress was, <laughs> but you couldn't get them to change their that Well, it's really where it is. <laughs> it was just like, really? But anyway, and uh, I realised then that the way education was set up, I would have to you know, pay my dues and be there for a long time before I could go on to a different type of role. And so I got out of education and worked with Olivetti International, which is a computer company as a systems analyst, which is basically a problem solver, and worked in Nivrea and in Italy and Hazelmere and Surrey, and then came back to Australia. I did my master's in education. So I clearly, I still had an interest in education, but I had thought I'd moved on. But towards the end of my master's degree, my husband and I went and lived in America for a while and I had the opportunity. I was looking after little kids, so I had 11 years off raising children, which is also puts paid for all those women out there who go, your lives are ruined and your career is over if you stop to have kids. That was certainly not my experience. Can I just point out, having worked for Joe Corollis, 
yes. at St Catherine's in Waverley in Sydney in yeah. the 1990s. She took 16 years off yeah. and jumped straight back into school leadership. The notion that taking a gap diminishes your capacity to come back and step up and take a big step forward and up into leadership, it's nonsense. Of course you can. Yeah, it is. It's like it's nerve-wracking. But you do have to back yourself, and I think one of the benefits of taking time off, male or female, but predominantly it is the women who do this, is that when you do come back, you don't waste time playing games. You know, I was never very social anyway, being a massive introvert. You go into these environments and you, you don't suffer fools gladly. You, you enjoy what you're doing and you love what you do, but you also know that the most important things in life is your family. And that if that was in any way threatened, you know, I mean I would walk and still would walk from any job that I had if I if I had to for my family. So you you have those kind of priorities. It's changed it changes a little bit. But you certainly don't sit there and do a job you don't like. So anyway, so I, I came back. But when I was in America, I had the opportunity of doing some evening courses at Harvard. And I completely and utterly loved it. And I had an insight into the professionalizing or the profession as such in America, which I loved. And I did a couple of courses with a professor there. And I had actually finished my master's. And here in Australia, I was lucky to see my supervisor, you know, every second Tuesday of every third month between the hours of one and two, if everything went well. Over there, you had educators who were at the time kind of helping develop education policy for the Ukraine, or they were engaged, you know, in the with the European with the European countries and setting up their constitutions that allowed, you know, education to be a compulsory aspect of their life. And I got to see a different form of education. And I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the anthropological background. So I just devoured books that talked about the social setting of schools and the impact of society on young people's chances and opportunities and the power of education in being able to bring about change. But it wasn't even education per se. It was the power of individuals to have an impact on the lives of young people, predominantly by the power of their words and the words that they use to create hope and to create possibility and I loved that I just fell completely in love with it and so when I came back to Australia I had a few more years off with kids I started my doctorate and I started working at a startup school another one where I came in at year nine so they had already done their primary school and I was coming into their high school and the really good thing about a startup school or a relatively young school is that you have the opportunity of experiencing and doing a whole lot of things that you wouldn't normally do in a really established school where everyone had very clearly defined roles. So when I came to this school, I got to do things that I just would never have done on the back of effectively one and a half years of teaching. We basically ran the school during the day and then we built it at night. So the hours were insane. And then, of course, it was at those times where we were inspected every year. So an established school in the independent sector anyway only gets inspected every five years. Some schools in other sectors don't even go for that. Like it just depends. But these startup schools are every year that you had to produce documentation for everything. And so you learned an extraordinary amount in a very short period of time. And I loved it. I, I really loved it. And I finished my doctorate there. and then left and then applied for the principalship of Roseville. And so really I'd had, when I became principal of Roseville, about five and a half years teaching experience. And that's almost unheard of. And there would be a lot of people who go, 
well, that shows. <laughs> and there'd be a lot of people who go, that was the worst decision ever. But I also think that having worked outside of education and loving education, I'm not sure that it disadvantaged me at all. And in fact, I think there are some things that were a real advantage to it. And one of them is including the privilege of education. So often teachers will fall into this slump of like, woe is me and life is really tough and this is a really hard profession. And I'm like, well, actually, people work really hard in all professions. You know, this 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 one is hard, but they're also hard elsewhere. And people hold down two jobs and work in factories and get paid far less than we do. So there is this kind of perspective on it that having worked outside, I think has helped keep me grounded when I've tended to tended towards the woe is me mindset, which happens to us all. Thank you for sharing all that. I really, really appreciate you being prepared to sort of open up the curtains a little bit on that. Look, I have a theory about school leaders that school leaders are the are the ultimate outliers in any school community because they don't do what most people, most adults do in the school community, and that is to spend most, if not all, of every day in a room with kids, helping them grow from being little people to bigger people and contributing to them becoming better versions of themselves. Instead, so many school leaders I see learn to be extroverts, but are generally speaking quite introverted in nature. They're observers and flanners. They know how to sit within the world and yet not of the world. And, you know, I think a lot of school leaders have that sort of capacity to analyse and to sit and to think in and around what it is they do. We have this expectation that school leaders need to have gone through everything before they end up in the job, whereas actually I think we need to get good leaders in positions of leadership as quickly as possible so that they can do the thing that they're best at doing, which is leading. And then leading inevitably involves equipping, empowering and enabling teachers to do the thing that they're best at doing, which is teaching along the way. If you had your druthers, how would you prepare leaders to lead in schools? So if you could do anything in the world, you know, this is the school on Mars sort of thing, how would you prepare leaders to be leaders? Well, I think many schools are already doing this, uh, like across all sectors. And where it works, I think it's magnificent. So one of the things that we do, and this is just one example, I mean, I think in the last um, six years, we've thrown off, if you will, four principals. So people who were kind of deputies who are going off into principalship roles. And we have another group that are coming through. And I, I think, how have we done that? Partly it's it's by witnessing and being immersed in the complexities of leadership in a complex ecosystem. And schools are nothing if not complex. And what you're trying to do with leaders, with people coming up through leadership, is to get them to open their eyes that nothing is binary, that everything is complex. And if you don't understand it, it's because you don't have all the pieces. And your role is not to make decisions that are hard and fast, but to work out where a person is at and then help them navigate their way forward. And that applies to other teachers, to parents increasingly, obviously, and students. So when you witness it a thousand times where you think you have a family pegged and then they say something as they leave your office and you go, I completely missed that one. When you watch a child that everyone goes, well, they're just obnoxious or have you met their parents? That's 
sitting in judgment of people. It's not coming alongside them. It's not connecting with them and going. Now, I'm not a group hug kind of person, right? So if anything, I err towards the tough love. I do believe in consequences. I do think actions have consequences. And the secret is, can you learn from that? So learn from the cause and effect. But gosh, that decision to make a call is a lot further down the track than most people are prepared to sit and wait for. But if you can win a person over, if you can, and I, I used to think of it in terms of one heart at a time, like you're not going to do that in assembly. That's going to be every conversation you have. It's every interaction in the corridor. And it, it's not a manipulative thing. It is a genuine, this is your role to help people understand that they're seen and they're heard and that they have a voice. And as I get older, I mean, it used to be about the students, but increasingly it's more than ever, it's about the staff and it's about the parents, all of whom are much younger <laughs> than they used to be in my book. So they they go into this group of people who are just trying to navigate life and do life the best they can. It's not my job to make them happy. It's not my job to be their counsellor. It is my job to validate who they are and to help them be seen and to be heard and to speak. I want to know their story. I want to hear their voice. And when I do that, then if they get to the point where they go, I'm stuck or I don't know what to do or or something gets put in their way and they behave in a way that we go, well, that's not right, you know, you actually understand what's happening in their world and how you can navigate it through. And I go back to my metaphor that I used before or that story before that no one wakes up in the morning and goes, how can I screw up? So if you if that's your assumption, then you actually do want to help people navigate their way through. You don't want to be sitting on the sidelines going, well, yeah, you did screw up there. Wow. Now what are you going to do about it? You know, it just doesn't help anyone. So, yeah, what was the original question? <laughs> oh, we were talking about preparing a leader, but, you know, what, oh. I'm, what I'm gleaning from that notion of, of preparing a leader is that the way that you prepare a leader is to in, involve them in leading yeah. and then the real life of the school. Yes, and so what I'm finding now is that leadership, I used to just do it by osmosis, and now I'm getting more and more explicit because people are hungry for it. They they really do. People who have a calling into this profession are keen to learn as much as they can. So now I'm also a lot more explicit. I'm open about leadership. I'm open about you lose the right to be offended when you're in leadership. There is no such thing as a win-lose outcome you're either both winning or they're winning and you're losing but you don't get to win at their expense you you learn all of these things and I'm more explicit now about what this looks like for them and in terms of my words and my actions so that people can see it and I'm not perfect as well you know that everyone knows that (laughs) so being able to reflect and go okay one one of the habits I have for example is I'll often, if someone says, look, this is what I'm thinking, I'll come back and go, well, you know, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Because the whole way the senior leadership team works, it's all around the collective wisdom. But when, often when I ask questions, what I actually mean is you need to think about this. I couch it like I'm asking a question, but in practice, I'm actually saying, you yeah, oh, you can do it. Whereas a person would reasonably expect that if it's a question, they could reasonably say no. But in my head, I'm like, yeah, but the answer is yes, you know. So I'm now having to be really clear. The Brené Brown line, clear is kind, unclear is unkind. Being a lot clearer around what I'm saying when I say it is an important lesson for me to keep learning. 
that's an entirely reasonable thing to do. And I, I talked earlier about, I guess, our definition of leadership, which is you've got to be able to influence and inspire and direct and motivate. And you have to be prepared to direct. Now, there's a reason why you're doing the gig that you're doing, which is that at the end of the day, somebody has to make a decision and say, this is the way that we're going to go. Whether it's the right decision or the wrong decision, somebody has to do that. And it's part of democracy is that a leader is chosen and then the leader has to be given the mandate and the authority and the the licence to lead, which means, you know, you can't get offended as a leader, but you also have to be prepared to make decisions and understand that it's your job to bring people with you with those decisions. Yes, and to the best of your ability, that that is exactly right. If people can engage in the complexity, there's this beautiful line by Thomas Wendell Holmes Jr. that says, I wouldn't give a fig for simplicity on this side of complexity, but I'd give my all for the simplicity on the other side of complexity. So what I'm trying to do is to stop people from giving out simplistic reactionary responses to engage in the complexity and then to come up with a relatively simple pathway forward. But you have to have engaged with the complexity to have done that. You can't be just there going, well, this is the answer and that's the answer. And, you know, if everyone just did what I said, this school would run so smoothly. And that takes time. But then it's not always about speed, right? So No, no, it's, it's certainly not. And when we come back to our conversation next week, I want to pick up on that notion of speed and, and taking things at a particular pace. You mentioned earlier the job of a leader in the school is an impossible job. We have a really significant issue, I think, right throughout our profession across the world, but particularly in Australia at the moment, where all the people who should be stepping up into school leadership as principals and throwing their hats in the ring don't want to do it because mm. they look at the job and they think it just can't be done. And more importantly, they think to themselves, if I do this, I will need to sacrifice for the sake of my family along the way. And, yeah. you know, to a large extent, I understand that. I mean, you, you talked about earlier the notion in your career where increasingly it's become more about the adults. I can remember a moment in 2008 where it was a pretty seminal sort of, well, seminal is one word, sort of year for me where my marriage had fallen apart. I'd fallen out of love with my job and my two sons and my daughter sat down with me at the ages of, I don't know, 11 and 10 and 6. And I said, what are you going to do next, Daddy? Because if you do, can you not be a principle because we want you to look after us not other people's children you know so that's what sort of set me on the pathway to what I'm doing right now which is I fell in love with the notion of working with adults in education and helping adults to see what their pathway forward might be and to think about how they could contribute to today's learning for tomorrow's world which is what we call it now I don't think I've had a clear sense of what that was at that point in time other than control-based authoritarian content-based systems of education which relied too much on public examination seem to me to be wrong. How do we help our colleagues to see that the job is both impossible and and possible at the same time, which is, I think, perhaps an anti-binary complex way of seeing us? Yes, it's a good way. Okay, firstly, the job as it currently sits in terms of people's expectations is actually impossible. There are so many stakeholders that their expectations are actually mutually exclusive. So you can at any point in time have someone be happy, but it will come at the cost of someone else not being happy. And once you accept that, then you have to make a decision to change the nature of the job. Now, that's really hard when you're a young principal. As you get older, you get more and more pragmatic about 
you care about people, but you can't let them determine, you know, how good you are or not good you are. You have to have such a strong sense of, you know what, I'm going to give it my best shot and and this is it. So there's a couple of things I'm going to say here which have helped, I guess, guided me through moving from a typical, you know, I want everything to be perfect thing, which is often the case by the time, you know, people are in leadership and senior leadership. They're very good at what they do. They get promoted out of that job into another job. They get very good at that. They move on to another job until finally you get so good at it that everybody is expecting you to do everything. I call it the vortex of doom. (laughs) And the vortex of doom is the job (laughs) that goes, you can throw everything into this job. You can throw your marriage, you can throw your health, you can throw your hours, you can throw your interests, you can throw your personality, you can throw everything into it. You can do whatever it takes to keep this beast happy and it will not be enough. Now, the reality is we actually all do put boundaries in place. We don't work in the office 24-7. We walk away often late and, and arrive back often very early And to do that, though, we are putting boundaries in place. We just put them too close to the edge of this vortex of doom. So if you can move the boundaries back a little bit and go, listen, you are never going to be able to do everything you need to do. You're just not. And if you can't accept that, then leadership is not for you. And this is where the humility thing comes in, too. Because I would love nothing more than to have a job where there were measured outcomes, where I could control my variables, where I could, uh, I had a scripted or timetable day and any issues that I have get outsourced. In leadership, it doesn't work that way. So you have a choice. You have to, you can either fight it and, and you keep throwing things into this vortex of doom trying to feed the beast. Or you go, you know what, I will do everything I can to a certain point and then I'm going to walk away. And it will be imperfect and it will be incomplete and people will think less of me and that's what it is. That's the price you pay, right? Like you you cannot do it all. So this vortex of doom, I I remember speaking to a young principal. We were actually talking about his doctorate and what his doctoral topic was going to be. And just as he was leaving the office, I just went, oh, you know, and how's your family? And he said, oh, actually, I'm just about to leave my wife. He said, I just can't do it all and I just have to do this. And you go, okay, there's a really good example of how you lose perspective and things get distorted when you just keep trying to feed this beast, trying to feed it enough and you can never do it. So once you know that and once you accept it, then you can kind of move on. The other analogy that I often use, and you'll see it sometimes on Twitter, it'll come up when I'm talking with people in educational leadership in particular, And it came out of a Harvard Business Review article a number of years ago where it talked about the complexity of the rainforests. And they're such rich, ornate, you know, beautiful places. You walk in and someone, a novice like me, I look in and I go, wow, the trees and the vines and the plants and the animals and the birds. And it's just this extraordinary, complex, beautiful natural landscape. An ecologist would walk in and they can tell immediately when something is out of sync. Now, these rainforests, the most finely tuned ecosystems, natural ecosystems in the world, they can walk in. And one of the ways they can tell is that the green tree frog disappears. Everything else looks exactly the same. But once the green tree frog starts to disappear, they know that something in this complex ecosystem is out of whack. So 
I look at this and I say to young leaders and old leaders, what's your green tree frog? What's your thing that when that disappears, even though everything looks great on the surface, you know that you're actually out of sync and something's not working. And that can be anything. For some, it might be like, okay, I have a weekly yoga class. And for some, it might be, I just go to the movies. Or some, it might be, I go for a swim. You know, if I can go for a swim on the weekend. Now, you can miss one of those green tree frogs. But once you start missing two or three, something is out of whack. All right. The ecosystem might look great for now, but it's not going to last. Another example I can think of is we all have calcium in our bones. But they don't ever do a blood test for calcium because your blood always has enough calcium. If it's ever short, it just leaches it from the bones, right? So the way they determine how your calcium levels are doing is by looking at your bone density and just checking that. And it's a little like this. You can look great, but if it's taking, if your life is being leached, if, if it's coming out of things that fundamentally matter to who you are as a person, you can look great on the surface, but ultimately you are getting weaker and weaker and weaker. So the question is, what are you doing to make sure you never get to that point where your bones are being leached or the green tree frog disappears? Because to everybody else, you can look magnificent. And this is a performative role, a performance-based role at times. Often, you know, I can get up in front of an audience of 3,000 people, give a really inspiring speech and be absolutely miserable on the inside. I can be out of whack. And who would know? I can tell you, no one, no one. So what are you going to do about it? Because it falls squarely back in your court around what are you going to do? It's not my job to make sure you're okay. It's your job to make sure you're okay. What does that look like? And partly that's giving permission to young leaders to go, you know, here you go. We, we did this exercise with our deputies the other day where I had got off Etsy 60 antique bingo chips. And I go, there's six <laughs> bingo chips. I go, here you go. You can only spend these 60 chips. Now, some might go 60 hour week, my Lord, but, you know, we work at pace here and, and it's a lot. And what I was trying to do was to get them to be very conscious of where their time was going. And everything counted. If you turned up for sport on the weekend, that counted. If you stayed back for a parent function or parent teacher nights, that counted. So how many hours are you actually spending? Because if you're blowing past 60 hours, you're losing it. You've lost perspective. You have to be prepared to have failed, for want of a better word, or to have not delivered to meet everybody's expectations. The 60-hour thing is, I'm glad you mentioned that. And we might, later in our conversations, we might start digging into the role of teachers and leaders, but the reality is, I don't know any school leaders that don't work less than 60 hours a week during term time, but it's also why we leave teachers and leaders alone in non-term um, time. Do you know what I mean? It's- most senior leaders work through, but they do, think, they do things differently. They drop down their hours, so they, they'll go to 30, 40 hours maybe, and they can wear jeans and sand shoes. <laughs> and every now and then they can take a day off. If they take a day off, really... As you said, you know, they're still working in 30, 40-hour week, but the chances are on that day off, they're spending the whole day thinking about work anyway. As you were talking about green tree frogs, I was sitting there and thinking, oh, you know, because you say things and you, you make me think about things, and I go, I won't think about them forever. I don't know if you, you knew you had that effect on me, but you have for many years now. I, I had two green tree frogs, and one of them was writing poetry and the other was going to the theatre. There's a third one which is going to live music of any sort, whether that's a symphony or a punk rock band, it's certainly not the ballet because I've never been able to stand that, but going to live music, that's never left me. So that little green tree frog's always been sitting on this tree trunk. The poetry and the theatre disappeared for 20 years and they got lost. And over the last three or four years, I've recovered the poetry. And I now publish it because oh, just stick it, up on, stick it up on Instagram because 
it's there for me to say, there's my little green tree frog and it's there and that's my way of reclaiming it. The live theatre has never come back mm. and I don't think it will. I've lost that one there. Can you give me an example of a green tree frog that you've hung on to, maybe one that you've lost and maybe one that you've rediscovered? For me, particularly during COVID, one that I rediscovered, now, for people... If they're challenged in terms of thinking what the green tree, tree frog is, I go, go back to what you were like when you were 10 or 12 or 13. What did you love then? What did you love before people's opinions around what you loved kind of interfered with that? And so for me, I loved going on camps when I was younger. And of course, I haven't done that for years, but during COVID, started getting into trail running and, and getting out in nature and all within a five kilometer radius of home, going of course. these um, na- nature parts and just getting away from it all. And it's an interesting thing, I think, particularly for women, that there's often a residual fear about being alone out in the bush or being alone you know, in in national parks or or whatever. And I I really didn't ever think I was that way, but I was surprised at how fearful or, you know, reserved I was about, you know, how far am I away from the road? And so I really kind of pushed through that. And now that refuels me completely. If I can get out in nature, if I can get out and go walking along the oceanfront or, you know, along bush tracks, it just is such a fulfilling and refueling thing for me to do and partly it's because I'm also by myself so you know I mean I I work in a profession where it's all about people 100% of the time and there's always people whom I love like so this is not a criticism but it's this constant interruptions it's this constant external engagement with other people it's me going out answering questions what do I think about this where are we going there what's happened there has they finished this set you know it's this constant at most I can probably go for about five minutes before there's another interruption of some sort so me being away in nature there's no people it's just me and I'm so I'm fundamentally shallow I don't actually think of a great deal I just get away from it the other thing that I used to love which I couldn't do so much during COVID is literally going to the movies because you can't answer the phone in the movies you can't look at emails you, you get immersed so in good, the world and for me so I, good. I can't do horror movies but there's otherwise apart from that there's not really a bad movie because it fulfills this other need which is pure escapism have you seen everything everywhere all at once yet no because if you haven't you have to best, okay. best movie of the year everything everywhere all at once i love it and you have to go and you have to go and see it in the movies i had the good fortune of going and seeing it at the IMAX in Carlton, and it yep. just blew my mind. It was fabulous. But everything, everywhere, all at once. And you said you're about to mention one more green tree frog before we before we oh, wrap I it up bought a, today. I bought a sea kayak, and I haven't actually been out that much, but I bought a beautiful set for the same reason. You can't be on emails. You can't be on phones. You're just out on the water. Nature tends to be a bit of a common thing for me. And getting that out there and doing stuff. So maybe that takes us back to full circle and, and the girl who chose agriculture. Maybe there was a reason for that after all. Yeah. Oh, I'm not sure. You know, anyway, anyway. Hey, um, hey, Bryony, we might press the pause button here and come back next week and talk about a few more things to do. Perhaps we might even talk about what it means to change the game. But thank you very much for sharing so much today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. 
Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.